You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. cannot see, I will trust the voice that speaks. So God, we invite your voice to speak in this place, God. You've heard uh, our voice, you've seen into our hearts as we've come to sing our praises to you and we pray now that as your word is open that we would hear your voice and that it would speak into the storms of our lives, that it would bring us peace, that it would bring us clarity, that it would bring us strength and power. And God, I pray, God, that your voice would be heard as your word is open, God. I pray that the messenger would fade very much into the background so that your message could be heard loud and clear. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. You've made me feel uncomfortable. So I'm going to make you feel uncomfortable. I've been suffering because of you, so I'm going to make you suffer. You talked about me behind my back. I'm going to talk about you behind your back. You've tarnished my reputation. You're going to see what I'm going to do to your reputation. Revenge. Payback. Punishing someone who has hurt us. It's it's inside of all of us. You see, God's given us, as his image bearers, we have this desire or this, this, this longing for justice. We can see the difference between right and wrong. And so often, especially when it affects us, we want things to be made right. The title for today's message is, May the Lord Judge. And we're going to be looking at a very difficult topic of how should we as Christians respond when other people mistreat us. We're going to be looking at the life of David. The series is called Searching for a King. And and today, the king is in a cave. And someone's searching for the king, someone named Saul. And they're searching for him because they want to kill him. And we're going to see uh, twice from Saul and once from a complete stranger, we're going to see David mistreated and accused. And David has an opportunity to respond. And we're going to see, really, we're not going to learn about how great David is. We're going to learn about how great God is, that he's so gracious that he provides the resources needed to rescue us from our reflex reaction to seek revenge. And rather than seeking revenge, to seeking to love our enemies, which Christ has called us to do. So open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 23. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers can help you out with that. We're a portable church. We don't have pew Bibles. We just have awesome ushers. So uh, raise your hand up if you need a Bible. Trust me, we're going to be looking at four chapters of Old Testament narrative today. It's going to be making a lot more sense if you're able to follow along in your Bible. Martin Luther King Jr. said, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. We we saw that play out not only with with Martin Luther King Jr.'s words, but with his actions and the, the movement that he stood for. Not a perfect man, not a perfect movement, 
but so greatly used to bring about justice, not with vengeance, not with punishment, but with love. Love towards those who are mistreating us. How should we be responding when we face enemies? We have enemies of all sorts, don't we? Some of us have had uh, an enemy that's followed us along all through our lives. Maybe the enemy lives in our house. And, and maybe we're married to the enemy, or maybe we are, maybe uh, the enemy is, is, is an abusive parent or spouse or, or whatever it may be. Maybe it's something that has traced you for a lifetime. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's an enemy situation that only lasts for a few seconds. Someone cuts you off on the highway. They've mistreated you. You were in that lane. That was your space. They've invaded your territory. How are you going to respond in that moment? Some of it's very hurtful, some of it's very personal, sometimes it's something very serious, sometimes it's something very insignificant. How do we respond when people mistreat us? That's what we're going after today. In 1 Samuel chapter 23, uh, David is uh, fighting uh, to get away from Saul. That's, that's all he's focused on. But God calls him into another fight, a fight to defend those who are weak and are helpless. Chapter 23, verse 1 says, Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Kayla and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Kayla. But David's men said to him, Behold, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Kayla against the armies of the Philistines? David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Kayla, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Kayla and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So that David saved the inhabitants of Kayla. So this city, this border town was threatened by the Philistines. David had enough going on. That's why David's men were like, oh, we're already running from Saul. We don't need to be looking and picking other fights right now. But David prayed about it twice. And God said, yes, go and rescue the people of Kayla. And they do. And this is how, this is how the people of Kayla respond. Check out what happens next. In verse 7 it says, Now it was told Saul that David had come to Kayla. And Saul said... God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself by entering a town that has gates and bars. So, listen, Saul doesn't follow God, Saul doesn't fear God, but he knows how to talk in spiritual language. Some of us are like that. We're not walking the walk, but hey, we can talk the talk. Hey, God has given him into my hand. No, he hasn't. David came to save the people of Kayla. That's why he's there. So then David prays. In verse 12, to God, as he's in Kayla, he just rescued these people. He asked God this very difficult question. He asked God, will the men of Kayla surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. This is how David is getting paid back for his good deed. This is how he is uh, being uh, um, reimbursed, is to be betrayed by the people that he saved. Why are they on Saul's side? Did Saul save them from the Philistines? No, Saul was too busy chasing around false enemies like David. And David was the one who saved the day, and yet the people betray him. 
So David responds in verse 13, Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Kayla, and they went wherever they could go. They weren't even welcome in the places where they were, were doing good and rescuing and fighting battles. Verse 14, it says, David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness and the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. I love how the narrator clarifies. Because in verse 7, Saul's like, oh, he's given him into my hand. And the narrator's like, no, he didn't. He did not give David into his hand. And in verse 15, it says, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, and Jonathan, Saul's son, went and rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. Now I love this. Saul is looking all over the place trying to find David. Every day he's trying to find him. Jonathan wakes up one day. I think I want to go see my friend David. Finds him right away. Just no problem. He's just, oh, I'm just going to go see David. And, and then why? Because God, he's, he's, he's in charge of all of this. And so he was keeping Saul away from David because Saul was trying to harm David. But Jonathan, who's not trying to harm David, but wanting to help and encourage him, strengthen his hand in God, God says, oh yeah, I'll lead you right to him. But then the people of Ziph, in verse 19, it says, the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah saying, is not David hiding among us? And they give the, the exact location where David could be found. And this is Saul's response. Verse 21, Saul said, may you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. There's that spiritual language again. Oh, you be blessed by the Lord. And then he says something really interesting. May you have, because you've had compassion on me. Why does Saul need compassion? You see, it's really important that, that especially as we're talking about this topic of revenge, we need to understand something. That there are some times in which we are victims, and it's very sad, and it's very tragic, and it's very difficult. But there are other times where we imagine that we are victims. And that's what's happening with Saul. Saul is looking for people to sympathize with him, to, to feel sorry for him, that somehow David is again, he's looking for people to side with him or David. So we say, oh, thank you for being compassionate. This has been so hard. Why has it been hard? Because David fought battles for you? Because he played music for you when you were stressed out? Well, what, what exactly has, has this been, has been so hard? Did you strain your arm when you threw a spear at him? But Saul thinks that he's the victim. So the people of Ziph reveal the locations, and then the way chapter 23 plays out is there's this mountain, and Saul is sort of chasing David around the mountain, and they're moving and maneuvering around. And right when Saul is about to capture David, in verse 27 it says, a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. Um, uh, excuse me, Saul, um, there's some real enemies. You need to do your real job as a king. And actually fight our nation's real enemies. And by the way, could you just reconcile with Dave, David? Because he would be a big help in defeating the Philistines as well. So then when we come to chapter 24, this is where we're going to see the first resource that God gives us in dealing with our enemies. The, the, the first thing that he enables his people to do. God graciously gives us, jot this down, patience with our enemies. Patience with our enemies enemies. And as we've been, uh, you know, it's, uh, Pastor Marv led us through um, um, First Samuel and then Pastor Chris uh, last week. We've seen Saul is just continually trying to put David to death. 
And it all sort of comes to a bit of a climax here in the, in the chapters that we're going to cover today. In, 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 in chapter 24, it says, When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Uh, en Gedi means uh, wild goat springs. It sounds like a water company or a theme park with water slides or something like that. Um, I've had friends who have visited wild goat springs. That, so there's a, a shot of, of, that's the spring of David. And then there's a whole bunch of springs. But they're called wild goat springs because really only wild goats could actually be able to scale the rock walls to actually get to these uh, places. You see, there's these huge cliffs with caves in it. That's going to be important uh, later. See, this is these massive faces of rock. You see the people down there in the bottom left? And so David is hiding out here, and Saul is uh, pursuing him. Look at verse 3. It says, He came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. So you picture this, David and his men, they're all, you know, they can't all see clearly because they're in a cave and they're, they're all sort of huddled together and like, wait, wait, did you hear something? What, 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 what? Someone's coming. Some, who is that? What's, well, they're really tall. What, they're, they're, but who is it? Who is it? Man, it, it's Saul. Saul is in this cave. Everyone be quiet, be quiet. What's he doing? What's he doing? Just tell us what he's doing. Why is he here? Well, he's, just tell us what he's, well, he's, just tell us. He's, he's, Relieving himself. And then it says, David rose stealthily. Oh, sorry, I, I, I jumped ahead there. Verse 4, the, the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord has said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him all that it shall seem good to you. And David rose stealthily and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So they saw him go. They saw him sneak up. He had his knife in his hand. And they think, this is the moment. He's going to finally take Saul out once and for all. But all he did was cut off his robe. Why did David do that? Why, did his, why didn't he listen to his friends? His friends said, here is the day which the Lord said to you. Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. Well, that all sounds really good, but the problem is, is God never said that. Now, we've been studying 1 Samuel, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. God never said that to David. He never said that your enemy was going to be delivered into your hand and you can do to him whatever you want. You see, I've noticed this over the years, that some of the worst advice on planet Earth comes cloaked in theological language. Just like Saul can talk the spiritual talk to justify the desires he has in his flesh, David's men were just sort of trying to frame things in a spiritual way so that they would do what they, so that David would do what they wanted him to do. God had commanded, you shall not murder. You can't fulfill God's plan by breaking God's command. And, and when, when God wants something done, he wants something done his way. And you can't compromise. There's no sinful shortcuts to seeing the will of God done in your life. Loved ones, we need to be really care of, careful about open door theology. I know the Apostle Paul uses that phrase, God has opened a door. But sometimes we can just read into coincidences 
and think, oh, God must be opening a door. And think, well, the, the, God must want me to do this, even though what, what you're wanting to do is something that goes against what his word says or goes against what wisdom is. You know, as soon as you get that raise or that bonus at work, the first thing you see in the mail is a flyer that that, that TV you wanted is 75% off. It's an open door. It's not an open door. Go to the bank and invest it. Or It just so happened. Can you believe it? That I bumped into that member of the opposite sex. And of all of the places and all of the times, I just happened to bump into them. Well, they're an unbeliever and they're already married. It's not an open door. Loved ones, we need to be done with open door theology and make sure we have open Bible theology. You can't break God's command and think that you're fulfilling his plan. That's not how God works. You see, before Saul came into that cave, David was doing some writing, actually. And he was reflecting on his situation, and he penned Psalm 57. And this is what the inspired word of God, these are the notes at the beginning of the psalm. It says, a victim of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. And this is what he wrote. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. You see, he knew that David's storm had had a name. The name was Saul. But he knew He knew that this storm was going to pass and he just needed to take refuge in God because he knew that it was God who was going to fulfill his purpose. David didn't need to take matters or justice or vengeance into his own hand. David knew that God was going to do it because God had a purpose. David had been anointed king. He knew that God was going to do that for him in his perfect timing. So he cuts off a part of Saul's robe. And then he confronts Saul in verse 8. He says, Afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. Notice the respect that David shows. David, David really has no reason to respect Saul. Saul had been acting in a very disrespectful way. He had no reason to honor Saul because Saul had been so dishonorable in his conduct and in his behavior. But David calls him my Lord and King and he bows down before him. He respects him. But showing respect in this way, respecting our enemies, doesn't mean that we let them trample all over us. It doesn't mean that we somehow become a doormat or we, and we just let them do whatever they want. No. What we're going to see here, David not only shows incredible restraint in only cutting off Saul's robe, but he also shows respectful confrontation. He's actually going to speak the truth uh, to Saul here. Let me show you what I mean. In, in verse 11 he says, see my father. There's another respectful term. See the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. 
So he, he states the fact. He says, look at the evidence here. This is what is true. And so David, without being defensive, defends himself in the situation and clearly states what is true. That is what's most loving. Saul was, was believing a lie that David was somehow against him. And so David lovingly, respectfully confronts him in his error. And this is why David can do this. Verse 12, he says, May the Lord judge between me and you, even if you don't believe me, Saul. May the Lord judge. You see, believing that God is sovereign and that he's good and that he's the judge, that is what ultimately gives us the strength to forgive, to not punish, to not seek vengeance when we are wronged. He says, may the Lord judge. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. Verse 16, as soon as David had finished speaking these words, Saul said, is that your voice, my son? David and Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And then look at, look at what Saul says in verse 20. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king. Did Saul just say that? Saul himself is declaring publicly that David is going to be king. Guys, dead Saul can't say that. A dead Saul lying slain, hidden in a cave, can't say to David, you're going to be king. You see, when we take those sinful shortcuts, when we take matters into our own hands, we miss out on what God had in store. So David shows patience with his enemies and loved ones. It paid off big time for him. Then in verse 22, David makes a promise to Saul to uh, look after. It says he swore this to Saul that he would protect his offspring. And then it says, then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Uh, this is... Uh, really important for us to understand. Uh, forgiveness means that you're no longer seeking to punish someone when, uh, for what they've uh, done to you. So, you're no so if they've made you suffer, you're no longer trying to make them suffer as a result. You are bearing with that suffering, or as a believer, you are casting that suffering onto Christ and allowing him to carry it uh, for you. But there's a huge difference, loved ones, between suffer, between forgiveness, which is what David is doing here, not seeking vengeance, and trust. Saul has demonstrated time and time again that you can't be within arm's length of him without him throwing a spear at you. And even though Saul seems to be showing remorse here, David is very wise. He says, I forgive you. I'm not going to punish you. You've been trying to kill me, but I'm not going to kill you. But I am going to position myself in such a way that would no longer enable you to continue to behave in this way. And that's ultimately loving. So forgiveness can be given at any point, but trust needs to be earned. And so whether you're in the position of someone who needs to offer forgiveness to someone, or whether you're in a position where you're hoping that someone would offer forgiveness to you, understand that forgiveness can happen at any time, but trust is going to take time to be rebuilt. But David here shows incredible patience with Saul. 
But then in chapter 25, we're going to see God, another resource that God gives us to help us because David's going to have another encounter with another enemy, someone who he's never met before, very different situation from Saul. And in this story, we're going to see this. We're going to see that God graciously gives us protection from our own foolishness, that he loves us so much that at times he gives us radical patience towards our enemies, but at other times when we lack that patience, he protects us from acting in foolishness. In chapter 25, verse 1, it says, Now Samuel died, that great prophet and judge, the one who had anointed both Saul and David. He had passed away, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man of Maon whose business was in Carmel, so he was a commuter. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The, the woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. So this is, this is Beauty and the Beast. This is tale as old as time. I don't know if they had a singing teapot at their house in Carmel or, or not, but... This is a classic case of, you know, most, most men in the church would agree that in Nabal's case, he married up, okay? Uh, Abigail is a discerning and beautiful, and he's harsh and badly behaved. Verse 4, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young, ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him, Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. That, that means that he's going to have a, a sheep shearing festival. It was kind of like a giant customer appreciation party where a, a local business owner, a, a shepherd, would invite everyone who's connected to his business, all of his clients, all of his suppliers, everyone along the chain of production was invited to share a celebrate in the prophets of that year. And so David found out that he has shears. And this, this, this sort of party is mentioned in Genesis chapter 38. There's going to be another one that we're going to learn about in 2 Samuel. It's this big, generous, huge a party. And, they, and they're supposed to go to um, Nabal and say, I, I hear that you have... A shears. He says, now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. David just wants to communicate that the reason why your, why your flocks are so large, the reason why you have so many sheep to shear this year, is because your shepherds ran into us in the wilderness. And not only did we do them no harm, we also acted as their bodyguards and made sure that they lacked nothing. We protected them. And so that's why you've had such a big prophet this year. Verse 9, he says, you don't have to, verse 8, he says, you don't have to take our word for it. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes. For we have come on a feast day. Please give us whatever you have on hand to your servants and to your son David. He says, I know you're having this big feast. We just want whatever you have on hand. We don't need to be the guests of honor at the party. Just whatever you have as leftovers, we would just really appreciate it if you would um, reimburse us in that way. 
Verse 9, when David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? Listen, Nabal knew exactly who David was. Everyone knew who David was. There was a pop song about him. Saul killed his thousands, and David killed his tens of thousands. He says, there's many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. So remember, Saul sees himself as a victim. And Saul was probably sending out propaganda about David, saying that he has broken away from me, and he's trying to lead a rebellion against me, spreading all of these lies. And then he says in verse 11, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat and that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who have come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. David is planning on cutting a lot more off of Nabal than just part of his robe. He's going to act very foolishly in response. Isn't, isn't it quite perplexing? Saul had been chasing David all through the wilderness. He's throwing spears. He's sending thugs over to his house. He's bent on trying to kill him. And David's like, you know what, hands off. I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to let the Lord deal with this. And then Nabal doesn't invite David to a party. And David's like, you're a dead man. It's surprising, isn't it? But loved ones, in the Christian life, there's no coasting. Resistance to temptation in the morning doesn't carry through and make it easier in the afternoon. Just because you're seeing victory in one area of your life doesn't mean that that's just going to bleed over automatically into all the rest of your life. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stand take heed lest he fall. Don't, don't, don't think that just because you've handled things well up until this point, that whatever other temptation or trial is going to come your way, you're going to handle perfectly. You know, David might have been thinking, man, I'm such a nice person. You know, I'm just, I'm just a really nice person. I mean, Saul came right into the cave. I could have killed him. I'm such a nice person. And we've been looking after the, we've been looking after the, the sheep that belong to Nabal. I'm a nice person. And, but, but the, so let's go over to Nabal and let's tell him how much of a nice person I am. And then all of a sudden, you don't think I'm a nice person? It can happen so easily. Be careful if you think you're standing. Because that's when you're ready to fall. We need to be continually leaning on, depending on the grace of God. And God's grace delivers here. Even when David was acting so foolishly, God wants to protect David from his foolishness. Verse 14, but one of the young men told Abigail. One of the young men went to that discerning and beautiful wife of Abigail. And he said, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. And look down at verse 17. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Nabal would not receive advice or counsel. No one could convince him uh, another Way. So Abigail gets together all of these gifts, all of this food, because that's what they were looking for in the first place. And she goes and she tries to intercept David before he gets to Nabal's a compound. 
She says in verse 25, Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. The word Nabal literally means fool. Like, I don't know what his parents were thinking. <laughs> so, so she goes and she says, please, please have mercy on him. He has acted foolishly, David. Don't be foolish yourself. Don't answer this fool according to his folly. She says in verse 30, or sorry, in verse 28, she says, Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. So I, I think cloaked in there is a little bit of a rebuke towards David. David, you've been called to fight the battles of the Lord. Killing Nabal over an insult is not, doesn't fit within that category. This isn't a battle of the Lord. This is, some, this is about a personal offense. And then she, she says in verse 30, And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience, having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord working salvation for himself. Do you see what, see what Abigail is doing here? She's appealing to the promise that God had made to David. She's saying, you're going to be king someday. We all know that. And don't behave now in a way that you would regret in the future. Don't just trust what, what you're feeling in the moment. Think long term. Think about who God is. Think about what he has promised. Think about your identity as king. You know, Paul Tripp says that, that sin and temptation comes from forgetfulness. We forget who we are. We forget our identity. We forget who God is. We forget what his plan is. We, we, forget to, we forget to see the big picture. And so Abigail graciously reminds him of his identity. And I love how David responds. Verse 32. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. David knew that, yeah, it was Abigail talking, but it was really the Lord who was working. Dale Ralph Davis says, what loving hands construct the roadblocks to our foolishness. It was God who led the servant to talk to Abigail. It was God who led Abigail to come and talk to David so that he wouldn't act so foolishly. So David changes his course. Listen, David is not a perfect man. If you haven't learned that already, you're going to learn that as we continue through the rest of the end of 1 Samuel and into 2 Samuel. But David's described as a man after God's own heart. There's one thing. What was said about Nabal cannot be said about David. It was said that Nabal was a worthless man because no one can speak to him. The thing about David, and yeah, he sinned, and he sinned greatly. But when David is confronted about his sin and when his sin is exposed, loved ones, he received it and he repented. And that's what he does here. He received the protection that God gave him from his foolishness so that he wouldn't act with revenge. So David doesn't go. Abigail goes back, tells the whole story to Nabal. Look at verse 38. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Again, God did what God 
was planning on doing. God is the judge. David didn't need to be the judge. David didn't need to take matters into his own hands. God was already going to deal with it. Verse 39, it says, When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. So he knew that this is what God had done. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. Well, hold up, hold up. Wasn't David already, already married? And then look down at verse 30, 43. And David also took a Ahinoam of Jezreel, and, and both of them became his wives. Verse 44, Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. And so what, what's going on here? We've got multiple wives. We've got wives coming and going. He's married to her. He's not married to her. Where, where's the next verse? Where's the next verse where the narrator says, and this was wrong? Well, the narrator doesn't say, and this was wrong, but the narrator keeps telling the story. And oftentimes when we study the Bible, we need to understand the difference between what's descriptive and what's prescriptive. Prescriptive is saying, this is what should happen. This is what ought to be. This is right and wrong. That's prescriptive. But sometimes the Bible is just flat out descriptive. It just describes what happened. But as you follow the rest of the story, I mean, how does polygamy work out for David? What, what are the family dynamics like for him having multiple wives? Well, the children of those wives end up raping and murdering one another and, and, and then planning and scheming rebellions to overthrow David himself. So the judgment of that decision is played out over the course of history. Also, also with David sort of develops this habit, and it started with Abigail being like, hmm, I like her. I want her to be my wife, so I'll take her. I mean, her husband's dead. And he, so he sort of got in this habit of, you know, I like her. I'll take her as my wife. And when, when it's Abigail and, and, and when, it's, when it's dead Nabal, that works out fine. But when it's Bathsheba and he says, I like her. I want her as my wife. No dead husband, though. Well, I'll just need to take care of that. And so we see, starting here, a pattern of behavior for David that proves to be very, very destructive. And the narrator allows us to see and understand that over the course of time. Listen, Genesis 2, God instituted the first marriage. He created the first people, man and woman. It was Adam and Eve, not Adam and Eve and Stephanie and Jessica and... No, it's one man, one woman for one lifetime. That is God's perfect plan. So God had protected David from his foolishness. And we're going to see how that little incident with Nabal, how God had a purpose and a plan for bringing all of that about for what happens next. Look at chapter 26. When the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah saying, is not David hiding himself in the hill of Hakaliah? So again, Ziphites, same people that sold him out in, in chapter 23, they're telling Saul where David is. Saul gathers all of his army and they camp out and there, there's thousands of them. They're looking for David. And then one night when all of the army is asleep, David um, 
through spies, discovers where they are. And in, in verse 7 it says, So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. So now here's another moment where Saul, even though he said he was sorry, even though he said he was wrong, even though he said that David was going to be king, here comes Saul again trying to kill David. The same situation. And here in in this third story, we're going to see just a, a third resource that God gives us so that we don't react with revenge. It's this. He gives us perseverance in our circumstances. He gives us perseverance in our circumstances. So here they are. Everyone's asleep. They managed to get through all of the army. And there they are. Saul is asleep right there. And I'm like, how could he come back? He said he knew he was wrong. He said I was going to be king. And then his, his friend, Abishai. Now, just before we talk about what Abishai says here, you need to know something because we're going to hear some more about Abishai and his brothers, the sons of Zeruiah. These were like the most bloodthirsty people you could ever imagine okay so just this is what he's this is what he says God has given in your enemy into your hand this day again theologically uh, sounding advice he says please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice he's he wants to kill Saul so badly that he's bartering about spear strokes just one I know you think it would take two, but listen, I, I, I know I can kill him in just one. But look at what David says. Verse 9, but David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? So that sounds similar to what David has said before, but now look at, what, look at the perspective that David has now because of what has just happened with the Nabal situation. Verse 10, and David said, as the Lord lives... The Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into the battle and perish. You see, David almost pulled out his sword and killed Nabal, and then he saw how God dealt with it. And who knows, if there wasn't the Nabal situation between chapter 24 and chapter 26, who knows where David's mindset would have been. If he was still on that nice person thing, and Saul came back, maybe David would have killed Saul in that moment. But God knew and God allowed the, the, the insult of Nabal to take place and, and had that whole situation play out for David to see his own wickedness, his own foolishness, to have that exposed, and for God to show his own faithfulness in that moment so that when Saul came back again, David had perseverance and perspective to know, you know what? He dealt with Nabal, and that was a small thing. What Saul is doing is far bigger than what Nabal did. If God dealt with Nabal, he's going to deal with Saul. I don't need to fight this battle. Loved ones, that is so freeing. If we can get to that perspective and say like David said, may the Lord judge. May we know and embrace and understand what it means For God to be sovereign and to be good so that we don't have to take matters into our own hands. And David does the same thing. He gets himself at a safe distance. 
He wakes everyone up. He shows him. He, he took his spear and his, his water pitcher to prove to him that, that he had been there and didn't kill him. Saul goes through the same routine. Saul says, come back, return to me. David says, just send someone to pick up the spear. I'm not going back with you, Saul. I, don't tr- I forgive you, but I don't trust you. The one that I trust is the Lord. God is so good. It says in, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 21 to 23, it talks about Jesus Christ. It says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. That when we suffer, when other people harm us or wrong us, it says that Christ was, did that leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Ultimately, we're not following David's example today. We're following Jesus' example. David points us forward to Jesus. It says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued, notice this, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus trusted his father, that his father would judge justly. We too must trust that God is judge and that he will judge justly. That's so freeing. David didn't come to the throne by shedding the blood of his enemies. Jesus didn't come to the throne by shedding the blood of his enemies. Jesus came to the throne by shedding his blood for his enemies. And loved ones, Romans 5.10, Colossians 1.21 tell us that we were enemies of God. And that rather than God taking vengeance and punishing us, God had his son suffer for us so that we could be forgiven. So our model of loving our enemies comes right from God, right from God himself who loves us even though we were his enemies. And if you're here today and you're struggling with this idea of, I don't think I can forgive someone. I don't think I can let that go. Well, maybe the reason is because you've never learned or you've never heard what it means to be forgiven by God. Or maybe because all temptation and all sin comes from forgetfulness, maybe you've forgotten and you need to be reminded, stirred up by way of reminder today that God has chosen to forgive you, although you were his enemy. So let's bow our heads and pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that it is living and active. We thank you that it speaks to our very hearts. It speaks to the, the very inner turmoils and struggles that we face in our everyday situations and circumstances. God, I pray that you would fill us with a sense of awe and wonder at your grace and your forgiveness towards us. And that as we reflect on your incredible sacrificial love that made forgiveness possible for us, that we then would be able to extend that love to others. That when we think about how you chose to have Christ punished instead of us, that we would be set free from this desire of wanting our enemies or those who have harmed us to be punished. May we trust that you are judge. God, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.